So it was almost a month ago that Catherine and I boarded a plane out of Orlando with a few of our clergy colleagues here in Florida and their spouses to head to England. Um, we were participating together in the Wesley Study Tour, which is a continuing education experience for Methodist pastors in Florida, an endowed program uh, that is just a tremendous opportunity, and we were so glad to be able to do it for the second time, actually. Um, and so while we were there, just revisiting some of the sites and remembering some of the, the foundational elements of who we are, not only as Methodists, while they are particular to our story as Methodists, uh, foundational to who we are as people of faith as well, thought, you know, this, this would be great material for a series of messages to share during the summer. So that's what we begin today. Um, but as we were thinking about it while we were there, I, I happened to run into John Wesley one day while we were over there. Um, and, and John and I shared a cup of coffee, and, and I asked him what he thought about the idea, and he said sounded great to him. He was always happy for us to share more about the Methodist movement, so, so here we are. Um, so somebody at the first service walked out and said they saw the resemblance between John and I. I don't, I don't have any hair anymore, but anyway. Um, so, so today we begin, and um, we start with listening to some things about John's own life because they are foundational to understanding the story of the movement. I'm going to read a passage of scripture that comes from the letter to the Ephesians, uh, and it's found in chapter 2 and, again, is instrumental to uh, John's own life and what he came to understand about how God was at work, not only in his life but in all of our lives. And so I invite you to follow along now as I read this passage for us. <clears throat> you are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It is not something you possessed. It's not something you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. This is the word of God for the people of God, and God's people say, thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, and breathe life into the words of this servant, that they might carry a word from you into our hearts and lives today. Amen. You are saved by grace, by God's grace, because of your faith. And this salvation is God's gift. It's impossible to understand the roots of the Methodist movement apart from John's own story and experience of Christ and salvation through Christ. And so we begin there today. And so I want to give you a little bit of background uh, to help us as we get started. John and his brother Charles, uh, the two most well-known children of Samuel and Susanna Wesley, uh, she gave birth to 19 children, 10 of them, yes, 19, you heard that number correctly, uh, 10 of them survived, um, but the two that we know the most are John and Charles. 
Um, and, and so they were born in the town of Epworth, England. Um, John and Charles and the others were children of what I like to say were two preachers. Samuel was the appointed rector of the parish there, the Anglican parish there in Epworth. But Susanna was quite the woman of faith and leadership herself. And there were times when Samuel was away from home and traveling, when she was really the one who kept the church going and even preached and led Bible studies. Uh, and so John and Charles really were the benefit, beneficiaries of, of two parents who were preachers and leaders. And, and one of the stories about John's life is that when he was five years old, there was a fire in the rectory where they lived and pretty much burned the original rectory down. It was rebuilt several years later. But as the fire was consuming the house, everybody had gotten out of the house except for John, and they realized that he was still in the house in an upper bedroom. And so he was at the window. They were able to get him out of the house through the window, and there's some wonderful paintings of this particular scene from John's life. And Susanna, his mother, described it as a moment in which he was like a brand plucked from the fire. And from that day forward, there was this sense that he had been saved for a very special purpose and that his destiny was wrapped up in a calling to commit himself to service of God and the church. And so that experience and that sense of destiny, along with some other cultural things that were at work in the background of John's life, all contributed to a way of understanding the world around him and a way of understanding his faith and his relationship to God that were challenging for him to ultimately let go of in order to, to be the beneficiary of God's grace. At the age of 17, John left home and went to Oxford University to study and pursued his course of studies there, stayed there for a time as a junior fellow, returned to Epworth for a short period of time at his father's request to help minister in the community, but then went back to Oxford again. And by the time he got back there in the late 1720s, his brother Charles had matriculated at Oxford as well. And together, along with a few other young men, they began to meet daily to challenge and support and hold each other accountable in the ways in which they were practicing the faith. They were very rigorous in their, stand, in their standards and in their understanding of what they were supposed to be doing. They would ask each other challenging questions about were they being faithful to God and were they doing the things that they were supposed to be doing. And they were so disciplined in these matters that they became the subject of taunting and uh, poking fun by others in the Oxford community who dubbed them enthusiasts and fanatics and called them those crazy Methodists because they were so methodical in their approach to faith. Now this was something that was not normal in those days and so they were seen as kind of out on the fringes. Well, well John took that jab 
of being crazy Methodist and received it uh, as a compliment. He said, I see that our friends offer us this wonderful compliment. And so they decided they would just take on the name. And it has stuck all of these years later. In 1735, John felt a calling to be a missionary and to come to the colonies in order to be among the people in the area in and around Savannah and also to carry the mission of the good news of Jesus Christ to the Native Americans in that region. Well, that experience, which lasted for a couple of years, could be judged by most folks as being a miserable failure. At the end of 1737, he left, he boarded a ship under the cloak of darkness to return to England because he had been run out of the colony by those who disliked him, including the family members of a young woman with whom he had had a failed personal relationship. And when she had spurned his advances and he was frustrated and upset and hurt by that, he denied her communion at the table one day, which didn't go over well, as you can imagine. And so all of these things had happened. Uh, his, his attempts at evangelizing had fallen miserably short. And he also had this sense of not only his own disappointment, but feeling as if he had disappointed his parents as well because of this calling that he felt so heavily upon him. He also was still holding on to ideas in those days that his salvation was at least somewhat dependent on his own efforts. Now, that may sound strange to some of you uh, who have grown up with this sense of faith by, and salvation by grace alone, but it was part of a dominant tradition in those days that moral achievement was one of the avenues toward salvation and that there also was an insistence on having the right beliefs with sufficient faith. You needed to make sure you had enough faith and you needed to make sure you believed the right things. So John comes back with all of these things weighing on him in early 1738. And he still presses on. He goes out and he starts preaching. And we learn from his journals that church after church after church in the Church of England and community after community uh, bans him from ever coming back again <laughs> because he is sharing this message about how faith should be taken seriously and it's more than just a rote practice where you show up for worship on Sunday and then the rest of your life and the rest of your week doesn't matter. And so by the time we get to early May in 1738, he is miserable himself. And he is utterly depressed. And he writes this in his journal. I was sorrowful and very heavy, being neither able to read, nor meditate, nor sing, nor pray, nor do anything. Anybody ever felt like that? Well, there are so many things weighing your life down. 
So many troubles, so many hardships, so many struggles, so many things not going the way you anticipated or expected that you cannot even raise your voice to pray or to sing. This is where John was in early May of 1738. And then on the evening of May 24th, he went to a gathering in Aldersgate Street in London, something that we have come to adopt as the Aldersgate experience. Take a look at this short video that shares a little bit about that evening. We often talk about Aldersgate Street or the Aldersgate experience as John Wesley's conversion experience. It represents a watershed moment in his spiritual journey. Somebody who has some sense of who God is and what God means and what God's about in their head, but doesn't feel it or the spirit stirs in him in a way that a dynamic connection is made between what he believes about God in his head and now what he feels and experiences about God in his heart, in his emotions. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. It was the sense that God loved him even him, that was life-changing. In early 1738, John Wesley was at a low point. Having just returned from his disappointing missionary efforts at the colony of Georgia in the New World, Wesley reluctantly attended a group meeting on the evening of May 24th on Aldersgate Street in London. As he heard a reading from Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, he felt his heart strangely warmed. He writes in his journal, I felt that God loved me. I experienced that God loved me. It was no longer something that was in my head, but it's something that I felt in my heart. Wesley was the son of a preacher and grew up in a devoutly religious home. But the dynamic connection to God made at Aldersgate was new to him. I think he came to his adulthood with one particular concept of how the religious life should work for him. And I think that's what he had to relearn. He had initially planned to live life in a certain way, and that was going to make a great relationship with God. And what Aldersgate taught him was he had to flip it. He'd gotten unintentionally the cart before the horse. John describes his experience that night as having his heart strangely warmed and finding an assurance that he had never known before. That flipped his understanding of his relationship with God and what it meant to be a person of faith, living a life of faith. And from that day forward, while it wasn't the end of his doubts and struggles, I hope that comes as good news for you as well, that no matter how much assurance we feel, there can still be doubts and struggles that come along the way. And we, we read that in his journals throughout his life. But from that point forward, his theology became grounded in this assurance. Tom Langford, Wesleyan scholar, says that for Wesley, theology was intended to transform life. And 
based on this Aldersgate experience, grace moved to the center of Wesley's theology. He became emphatic about the change that grace affects in our lives. And so it is no surprise then that the passage that I read for us today from Ephesians 2 became a core scriptural foundation for him. Ephesians 2.8 was the theme verse for two of his 140 sermons that he compiled uh, to share with preachers in the early Methodist movement, uh, sermons that we still have available to us both in bound volumes and online today. And the very first sermon in that ordering of sermons, Salvation by Faith, is based on Ephesians 2.8. So Wesley's own story then and his own experience of that assurance became a window into him understanding the human experience of others. After all, who among us has not at some point wrestled with the struggle of being good enough, of measuring up, of having accomplished something that makes us worthy. And this happens in all kinds of ways in our lives, doesn't it? It's a, it's a cultural presence among us where we ask ourselves, what do I have to do? And that creates anxiety and, and unrest for us. What do I have to do to fit in? What do I have to do for them to notice me? What do I have to do to find acceptance? And when we layer those kinds of questions onto our relationship with God, it can become overwhelming. And we can feel as if we could never possibly do enough. And this was the burden with which John had been living for all of his first 35 years of his life. That he just had to do more. And he hadn't done enough. He, couldn't, he hadn't measured up. Until Aldersgate became that marker. That watershed moment that was a reminder that he could go back to time and time again, that God's love comes first. And there is nothing that we can do or fail to do that will ever change that. Hear that again, God's love comes first. And there is nothing that we can do or fail to do that ever changes that. Last fall, Catherine and I went to Greenville, South Carolina for a weekend. It was homecoming weekend at our alma mater, Furman University. Uh, but while we were there, we drove around Greenville. We had some extra time after we had gotten into town. And I got this urge uh, to drive down Earl Street, which is where Earl Street Baptist Church is located, a church that I had spent some of my earliest years attending. And so we drove down Earl Street, and as we were driving by, I got the nudge to pull off in the parking lot and get out and see if we might be able to get into the building. And we did. And sure enough, we walked up. There were some construction workers there because they are in the process of renovating the sanctuary. 
and so we were able to walk in, and while the room was all a, a mess because of it being under construction, I could look up at the front, and the baptismal pool with the stained glass window behind it looked exactly the way it did 50 years earlier when I was baptized there as an eight-year-old boy. I remember at the age of eight going in to have a conversation with Pastor Killian and telling him that, yes, I believed that Jesus was my Savior, and yes, I wanted to be baptized because I loved God and I knew that God loved me and I wanted to live a life of that. Earl Street, a place that was a marker for me, one that I can go back to even 50 years later and remember. And so over the years, I've done it in various ways. A few years ago, Catherine and I were part of a group where we were invited to tell our story through poetry by talking about where we have come from. Mine goes this way. I am from Earl Street where the drowning occurred that started it all, that image of drowning to an old way of life, rising to a new way of life through the waters of baptism. I am not me apart from First Baptist and Broadway, the Lenning House, St. Paul's and Richmond, workshops where the sculptor chiseled me for this life. When I speak, I hear echoes of Matthews, Lawrence, Hauerwas, Dad, their voices lending strength, grace, conviction, wisdom to mine. In my mind are memories of tables, vessels of abundant grace and generosity, filled with fish and fungi, or fresh silver queen and homemade biscuits, or monk's bread and welches. Shards of stained glass, gathered from an African churchyard, compel me to love God, love neighbor. I own a cross, a gift at ordination, or perhaps more precisely, it owns me. I am from Earl Street, where the drowning occurred that started it all. Markers along the way, that shape us, that remind us of the assurance of God's love and God's grace for us. Aldersgate is what helped Wesley put things in the right order. You see, the, the character of our faith does matter, and works to which we are called do matter. After all, as we continue this passage in Ephesians 2 this morning, it says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good things, that God planned for us to do good things from the very beginning. But God's love always comes first. As one writer puts it in relation to this passage of Scripture, we are recipients of a remarkable gift from God, the gift of absolutely everything. The goal is a transformed life. God's love first, our life 
in response. On the last day of our trip in England a few weeks ago, we were in London and we had the opportunity to visit John's house where he spent a number of years toward the end of his life, located adjacent to the City Road Chapel, um, which was one of his crowning achievements of his ministry. And while we were there, we had the opportunity to gather in his prayer closet that is located just off of his bedroom. And in that space, we circled up and we each had a copy of the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer, a prayer that some of you have perhaps said at some point in your lives. Make me what you will, put me to what you will, put me to suffering, put me to doing, put me to all things, put me to nothing. I freely and willingly dispose all things to you. It's powerful to stand in that room after all we had experienced and to remember those words that John had incorporated into an ongoing way of life. And then after we had finished praying together, I just felt like lingering there for a few moments. And so after all the others had walked out of the prayer room, prayer closet, I just stood there for a few moments. And then I walked over to the bench that is in that spot where presumably John would kneel who knows how many times over the course of his life and pray. And I knelt down and prayed, unknowing that one of my colleagues was still in the other room and captured this photo of me there. It was another marker for me, another moment to remember the assurance of God's love, God's grace for me. Oh, how deep the love of Jesus for me, for you. For all of us. And so I wonder, I wonder if today might be a marker for you. A moment when you remember or perhaps feel for the first time your heart warmed in such a way that you have an assurance that there is nothing that you could do that would ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You are loved. And your life is just meant to be a beautiful response to the love that God already has for you and that will always be with you and for you. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Oh God, you are good and faithful, kind and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. I pray your blessing through the outpouring of your spirit on each person in this room, on every eye that is watching and participating online today, that we might sense the assurance of your love for us and that because of it, our hearts would be changed 
our lives centered around the good life that we see in your Son, Jesus Christ. May it be so. Amen.